It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Impact of Influence The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. As always, so grateful that you're spending time with us. I am Matt Harris, Seton Tucker, back from vacation. Hello. Hello. Well, we have been uh, working on other cases, and we... Hope to have one up very shortly about uh, Shanquella Robinson from Charlotte, North Carolina, who was murdered in Mexico, and it is a very disturbing story, but hopefully you'll follow us as we move to another case. But we're going to keep the updates coming from anything Murdoch-related. For instance, Alec Murdoch has been moved, and what do we know? Well, News Nation has reported that Alec Murdoch has been moved to the McCormick Correctional Institute, which is kind of north of Augusta, kind of on the border of South Carolina, Georgia, south of Greenwood, South Carolina. This prison includes both a general population wing and a special management wing, which may be used for inmates who are in protective custody. And John Snyder covered that in our last episode. If you want to go back and check that out. So Alec was only a stone's throw away from the Masters, but in a nice cell. So we also want to point out that Alec's been getting some letters. Yes, it appears as if he did receive some communication while he was at the Kirkland Correctional Institute prior to his most recent assignment. And Fitz News had an article where you can read some of those communications. We hopefully have an episode about that coming up soon, we're hoping. All right. We had questions after the trial ended still about some of the forensics. So we went back to one of our favorites, Joseph Scott Morgan. Here's that interview. Joseph Scott Morgan, professor of applied forensics at Jacksonville State. You've seen him all over the tube talking about various cases. In uh, 1985, he was a senior investigator with the Fulton County Medical Examiner in Atlanta. He remains one of less than 200 people nationwide to attain fellow status, and he's considered one of the leading experts on the corner system in the United States. Good guy, and he's also the host of the podcast, Body Bags. One of my favorites. It's great. Hello, Joseph Scott Morgan. Yeah. So, Joe, uh, thanks for joining us. I know you're really busy with all the cases that you're dealing with, and it was hard to get uh, all the time to get you in during the trial, but we have some questions that remain about this Murdoch trial. Let's start with the one about the defense's theory on how the shot occurred, and then the prosecution played it in as like a guy had to squeeze past him in the doorway and shoot him up above, and then the, the spatter would have been so horrendous that the uh, shooter would have been basically incapacitated, was the prosecution's expert and their theory, does that have any validity? 
Uh, I, th I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Uh, I will tell you where it doesn't lie, uh, that you've got a, uh, a leprechaun firing the weapon. <laughs> that's, that's not reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was probably one of the more absurd things that I heard. Uh, about the five foot you know, two shooter. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's just, you know, that, that's just not, not, not part of reality. Uh, I think in the, the fact that they they talked about a shooter being in a very uh, a very static position, and we as beings are not static. You know, our bodies aren't. You know, we're you know we have uh, multiple hinge joints. You know, mm -hmm. our, our ankles, our knees, uh, you know, uh, our, our our hips, uh, elbows, uh, wrist. Uh, you know, so we we articulate in, in various postures and to say that that is a hard and fast rule that this individual was in that position in the totality of the firing process is a bit absurd. Um, you know, and look, if you're firing a weapon, um, it's not unheard of for someone to be in a crouched, um, uh, particularly in an offensive push toward a target. You know, if you look at the way the military handles something, um, you know, where they're kind of bent and crouched moving forward, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying this person was this height. And right. that was, I think for me, that was very, very difficult for the jury to swallow, you know, yeah. because that, it, that was it forever and ever. Amen. They, they had no waffle room in there whatsoever. And so, you're really cutting your nose off to spite your face. I think if that's your supposition going forward. We heard two theories about how the shot occurred. One, I think the prosecution said it kind of came through an arm and went kind of in an upward angle. And then the defense said maybe it came from above. The Paul one, right? Yeah. Um, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, um, I got to tell you, um, this is where I think probably the prosecution side of the house really failed uh, relative to Paul. One of the things that stood out, one, there's, there's kind of this, there's a standard that you go by when you're doing an autopsy on a body and you're trying to assess um, range of fire and positionality of relation between the end of the muzzle and the point of impact. Um, and I don't care how egregious the injury is, you know, how horrible it is. And certainly um, that was described at great length. Uh, we heard about, you know, Paul's brain being ejected. Um, we heard about, you know, everything was kind of macerated with the exception of his face. His face still existed. But the one problem you can't get past is that for whatever reason, uh, the pathologist didn't shave the injury. Mm. And it's impossible to assess an entry location without shaving the hair away. And what does that do? Well, it gives you an idea of something that is a close contact or a contact wound. You have to shave that area away in order to assess hmm. soot deposition, uh, stippling, which is the unburned powder. Um, and any other elements that may be embedded in that area, you know, because that 
that gives you the kind of attitude that the end of the muzzle was in. And hence, if you have that, you can extrapolate that what the position of the shooter was relative to the victim. You know, where, where were they uh, in relation to, to the victim at the time the weapon was fired? Another problem also is, you know, going back to uh, Paul's brain, uh, you've, you hear the term eviscerated, which is generally associated with the removal of organs at autopsy. But the, I think the process, I'm sorry, the defense uh, used the term eviscerated, the defense witness, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Eisenstadt, used the term eviscerated, the brain was eviscerated. The prosecution witness stated me, you know, used the term ejected. It doesn't matter how it got out of the head, but what I do know is that the brain was was not examined mm-hmm. in an appropriate manner. The brain was not x-rayed. And so, you know, one of the big things that you're drawing into question here is birdshot versus buckshot. That's a huge tell because in my experience with shotgun wounds where you have, and I'm talking about ammunition that is like a non-solid mass where you're firing a slug, you know, which is typically associated with hunting, hunting game with, it's like a huge chunk of lead. Mm-hmm. If you have projectiles coming out of the end of the bottle, out of the, pardon me, out of the end of the barrel, they're going to spread and they're going to leave some remnant. Um, and the brain was not x-rayed. And so how are you going to assess what was and was not in there? Mm. And that goes to a bigger picture, doesn't it? You know, right. when you've got people showing up out there and they're still, <laughs> still scratching my head over this to this day, there's still projectiles laying on the ground, guys. Yeah. You still got, you still got pellets. I even saw them, you know, in scene images. I think we all did. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Um, these weren't collected. Are you serious? Right. And any, any other, you know, and I don't want to be too graphic, but any other biological remnant that's left behind, you know, uh, Murdoch's brother famously said, you know, he used the term bits of skull, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he cleaned that up according to him. How, how, how can you not pick those items up, retrieve those and bring those in? Because that's part and parcel. If you're talking about reconstruction of the skull, which you have to do, at autopsy to get a sense of the dynamic of the fire, you know, you can have soot deposition on the bone itself. So you left a chunk of the bone out there. Mm. Is that what you're telling me? A baseball size that, piece of the skull yeah, was found, a right? Big size too. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that's problematic, man. I mean, that's, that's really problematic. Uh, that's something that it's kind of one-on-one stuff, you know, that you do. Mm. And it's not like anybody was in a hurry. So right. you're going to, Put the brain in a separate receptacle, which is not unheard of. I've done that. I've had, I've had, you know, over my course of time with the coroner down in New Orleans in the ME in Atlanta, I've had brains ejected from skulls. It just happens. It happens in motor vehicle accidents. It happens in gunfire-related accidents or incidences. So it's not, this is not something new under the sun. Okay. It does happen. You're not pressed for time. How much more time would it have taken? Um, to go about and pick up these elements and send those in with the body. You can't tell me that you couldn't see them. I could see at least, you know, I can see the tiny little pellets laying on the 
yeah. on the ground, how much more so can you pick up a, a big piece of tissue, you know, just visually? And you can't tell me you didn't have a light in order to visualize this if you're doing it in the dark. Well, they were uh, still there the next day, too. So when the sun was up, they yeah, were still exactly. there. Yeah, exactly. So you've got ambient light that's that's trickling in. You, you don't have the need for the glare of those. You know, you guys have always seen it in television shows, and it's the truth. And you see it out here, you know, in reality, too, where we bring the big lights out to the scene. Yeah. You know, kind of blast away all of the shadows. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the reasons we do that. We want to be able to pick up on any kind of particulate evidence that's out there. So that that's why I'm saying that, you know, with the dynamics of this event, the truth probably lies somewhere in the center out here. Well, the pathologist said that the face would have not remained intact if it was, in fact, a contact wound. Do you have a, a thought on that? I think a lot of people think that the projectile that comes out of the end of the weapon is um, is the only thing that does destruction to tissue, and it's not. It's probably about half when you think about contact wounds. And so what she's talking about is that if this was a contact wound, and you have there's various levels to contact. You've got um, close contact, which means probably within about half an inch. Then you have kind of a press contact where the end of the muzzle is pressed against the skin. Uh, and then you have a tight contact, which is something totally different. If you're talking about a tight contact, not only is, is the projectile entering into the defect that's created you know, by this event, you've also got hot gas. And we learned in that, you know, you learn as young as in the seventh grade, the eighth grade, what does hot gas do? Well, it expands, and it expands at a hell of a rate. And when you have that expansion that occurs, destruction comes along with it. So you'll get this kind of splitting and tearing of the skin. Okay. Um, if, <laughs> if people will think back, uh, the forensics in the movie uh, uh, Silence and Lambs are quite ridiculous. But there's one comment in there that Claire makes. Uh, when she's in the backseat of the FBI car and she's, you know, taping her her findings, you know, um, and she says still a gunshot wound to the chest or star shape. Well, star shape arises as a result of gas expansion and the tissue actually tears mm. and it forms the it forms the shape of a star stellate, And you get this ripping and shredding. So I, I don't. I don't necessarily buy into the idea that the face would not be there. I think that you would have this kind of ripping and shredding approximating the area where the projectile entered the body, you know, on the head, you get mm-hmm. this, this, these tears that kind of fan out. If you think about like that classic image, like at Christmas time with star David, you know, where it's got the long tail and, and that sort of thing kind of expanding outward like that, you would, you would expect that, and it, it'd be over the top, but you know, just because you've got that doesn't mean that the face is going to be completely obliterated. So right. I, I, don't, I don't completely buy into that supposition. Go ahead, Steve. We heard a lot about skin tags mm-hmm. and how they might indicate directionality. Can you explain this to us? Yeah, the little skin tags that, that are being referred to is that they point into, they kind of point uh, relative to uh, the direction of the energy of this blast. So you, you know, if you think of them as like, um, kind of like little arrows, 
if you will, mm-hmm. how the skin is kind of ripped away. That gives an indication as to what, you know, they take these terms and <laughs> kind of church them up. And right. pathologists will say directionality. You know, it's the direction. All right. It's, <laughs> it's what it comes down to. It, yeah, you can say directionality if you want to, but it's the direction of the flight of the round is what they're saying. And that energy that's being dispersed gives you an idea because it's ripping and kind of taking the tissue away or downrange away from the muzzle. And so what happens is that in the midst of that that dynamic, the skin is kind of being torn away and it points in the direction of flight of the of, of the projectile. Did you uh, see anything or hear anything? that would say to you two shooters other than two guns or is that one of those that's the answer could be you know one or it could be two uh maybe two shooters however i think that if you've got someone that has um if if someone is keen on perpetrating a crime like this and they understand even at a rudimentary level as to how uh, crime scenes work and the way we do things. Um, it would seem to me that if you show up with two long arms, you're trying to throw people off scent, if you will, mm-hmm. at that moment in time. You're or one just to, happens to be laying around when you need right. It. Or you're you're trying to yeah you're trying to in, inject this premise into it. And and I think a lot of us thought that. I, I know I did. You know mm-hmm. it, you. You start to think about a, a shoulder fired or a long arm, mm-hmm. and it's unwieldy. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's unwieldy. It seems impractical mm-hmm. um, that someone in this short amount of time could utilize uh, could utilize uh, uh, effectively two long arms and be able to put rounds on target that quickly. Too hard to carry them but, around. Too yeah. Uh, yeah, it is. But you know. Listen, we've gone through, I don't know, guys, we, we're coming out of 20 years of war. So when you start to talk about an AR platform, one of the most prevalent things that, that is out there that people have seen in the news media for 20 years, guys, are tactical slings. And you can buy them anywhere. Uh, oh, you know, I've got, wow. I don't know, I've got here in Alabama, I've probably got five gun stores within about a 20 mile radius. I could go and buy a tactical sling right now. Huh. And it keeps it centered on your chest. I mean, look at any of the images out there of our troopers in the field that are, you know, are carrying that are under arms and they're in a hostile environment and they're carrying tactical sling. Well, what that sure. does is that it makes it easy to manage that weapon because it's carried on your chest. It's not like an old slinged weapon that you have over your shoulder. That mm-hmm. that's easy to explain. You know, you show up with a, a tactical sling on this AR platform and you're carrying the 12 gauge. Yeah, it's easy as hell to, to hmm. make that happen. Interesting. You know, you, all you have to do is put a little thought into it. I mean, the standard, the standard idea is the platforming of the weapons. You carry a, a, <clears throat> a long arm and then you carry a sidearm. Right. And that transition seems a lot more feasible. Quick. But if you initiate with a shotgun, you fire the rounds, and this is even interesting as well. And some people say, well, people down here in the South, they always load a, a round of, of – I've heard, I heard two or three people say this, I think, over social media. People always load up a round of, of birdshot, 
followed by buckshot. Birdshot is to warn you. Yeah. And the buckshot is to finish you. And I've heard several people say that. Well, you can look at it that way, or you can say, well, is this another attempt to throw people off scent? You know, not only do you have two weapons, but you got two different types of ammunition being fired out of the 12 gauge. True. An unusual, an unusual one that will not be found anywhere else on the property. Right. You're absolutely right. And again, you know, you go, (laughs) you know, there's more, it's not even a matter of more than one truth. There's, there's more than one possibility. And in forensics, look, um, one of the things I love about one of the beauties and the, the elegance of forensics is that. You know, negative findings are just as fantastic as positive findings because negative findings will push you in a different direction to try to solve the puzzle. Hmm. And just because this doesn't necessarily work this way, you have to begin to think about, well, how else could have it worked, particularly if somebody's attempting to deceive, deceive us. I uh, think Alec Murdoch was trying to deceive everybody. In this, I think that, <laughs> yes, that, hey, I'm no rocket scientist, all right. I guarantee you that, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to kind of figure that out. You know, you already have this, you know, you already have this kind of pattern that's developing, you know, throughout this guy's life, the way he presents himself, what he's doing. You know, look at the left hand while the right hand is doing this kind of thing, yeah, and he's familiar at least with the courts, um, and sure. understands. You know, he's no, uh, you know, he's no prosecutorial genius or anything, but he understands enough to be dangerous. And I think that that's, he was attempting to throw people off scent with all of this. I think my big question is this. <clears throat> I want to know where those weapons are. And mm-hmm. I think that they will be found. Oh, yeah? And I, I hold that they're, they're at the bottom of a deep, dark well somewhere. Um, and it's going to take, somebody with a keen eye, somebody with the right equipment that can go out and find them. You've got all these sloughs around there as well uh, with standing water where they could have been tossed out. Lots of water. Uh, It's amazing what happens when water rises and falls. It's amazing what happens when somebody discovers an old abandoned well that maybe hadn't been seen in years and years. Uh, would, Would this individual have had time to dismantle these weapons. I mean, no. cut them into tiny pieces and dispose of them. I, I don't know that that's, and I don't know if he would Not have been that. sophisticated enough to do that. Yeah. Uh, one more. So I, I think I'm going to be really watching to see what happens. And also I still have, I still have the specter in the back of my mind. Do he have any kind of accessories after the fact? Is there yeah, anybody that helped him? Seton and I think the same thing. Yeah. We have those questions. Before we let you go, we heard a lot about how much blood you would have been covered after shooting Paul. We heard Mr. Clean yep. and yeah, they started with it. They started as Mr. Uh, oh, what was Ms. it, Mr. Cl- oh, and then went to Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean. Yeah, anyway, anyway, what is your opinion? Would the shooter of Paul have just a tremendous amount of blood and brain matter and that sort of thing on them, or would it be possible to not be covered? Again, it rests somewhere in the middle. Wow. When you say covered, uh, covered implies, you know, you've you've had a bucket of blood, you know, dumped on you, all right? Or that you're exposed to so much tissue, you can see it all over you. These things are going to be particulate, um, and it's going to be high velocity. So it'll be very fine when you see it. Okay. And the nature... 
the nature of this is not um, it's not um, it's not going to be a standard blood deposition because this is going to be back spatter uh, that you're going to have. So you've got the energy is, is driving that projectile into the target area and um, the target area is is therefore splashing backwards. And I've used this analogy to kind of simplify it. I think I, I think I said it on body bags in one of the, one of my episodes. Um, you know, when you're a kid um, and you're walking about with, with your family or whatever, your, your friends, and it's, there's just been a big rain and one of your friends that wants to be a jerk, you know, picks up a big rock and you're standing next to a mud hole and they throw it in the mud hole and you get splashed with it. It's kind of the same principle. You've got a projectile that's flying into this pool mm-hmm. of muddy water. And not only is it liquid, but it's it's viscous, viscous mud. Let's say that represents the tissue. So depending upon the velocity that this thing enters, it's going to splash back out. And it's going to deposit on whatever's in the immediate vicinity. If you're really close to this, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have deposition on you. Now, the how it looks, it's gonna be hard, hard to kind of ascertain that, you know, how it's going to present to people that are eyeballing you initially. Um, that's where time comes in. You know, would 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 he have had sufficient amount of time? in order to render himself clean, was he wearing something? Uh, a pair of, of coveralls, for instance. Did he have coveralls on? Uh, did he go to, to the extent of having a, uh, of having uh, a Tyvek suit? Can you imagine that? You know, Tyvek suit like we wear on crime scenes. Crime scenes, yeah. And yeah. yeah um, and did, would he have had that? Did they do a search history for that sort of thing? You know, you begin to think about that. Or did he just have an old pair of coveralls laying around? I mean, or did he just take his shirt off? And then yeah, or take his shirt off. You know, famously, I used to work with a forensic pathologist. Can you believe this? It's the first part of my career where he did, he did autopsies nude from the waist up. Wow. And he'd wear a white, a white apron, <laughs> a white plastic apron. And that's all he wore. <laughs> Um, it's not like this hasn't been thought of or done before. And then you go take a shower. Now, I mean, that's not something I'd want to participate in. (laughs) (laughs) To each his own, man, you know, whatever. Honey, I'm home. I got to take a shower. It it does make you think of Dexter. We have him behind us there. Yeah, yeah, it kind of does. But then, you know, the other added element to this that gives it an even more callous nature is that you're going to have this deposition on your person from a life that you've created and from a life that you've created life with and just, and you're not used to it. I'm not saying I'm some kind of ogre, (laughs) (laughs) but I've spent a lot of, I've spent a lot of years working in the morgue guys. Yeah. Um, I couldn't do it. I mean, even, you know, I've assisted in over 7,000 autopsies. I've been at countless death scenes over the course of my, I couldn't do it. Right. I do an autopsy on a friend of mine one time, Jesus. and it just about completely destroyed me. I, if I had it to do over again, I would not have done it, but I, I did it because mm. it was my job. I, how much more so can you imagine? Can you actually wow. imagine 
him doing this to his family, it no. gives you a level of callousness that I don't, I don't pe- think people have really done the math on. Uh, they've talked about it a little bit, but when you begin, when it gets down to the root of it, you know, and you look at how over the top this crime was and what he bore witness to, Jeez. now convicted of having borne witness to it, that adds a completely different spin on this case. Would you agree that Maggie was shot or that Paul was shot first and Maggie was running towards Paul? Yeah, I've thought that. And again, I have no way of proving this. I almost felt like that, that Maggie was, I I felt like he baited her with Paul's death in some way. I, I don't know if it was from a great distance or if it was where she was precisely. I don't know that we'll ever know that. Right. But there's no way that you'll ever convince me that she wouldn't have heard two 12-gauge rounds go off in the middle of the night up there in that house. Uh, You know, if she was in the house, she would have heard it. And people say, oh, they're always popping off weapons out there. Well, maybe they are, big piece of property, but they're popping off weapons um, out at that, the dog kennels at this time of night. That's what you're telling me? And that wouldn't have drawn attention to anybody, uh, other people that would have been occupying that space. Yeah. That's why I think that that Paul was probably fired upon first. Mm-hmm. And then Maggie came, you know, she knew, you know, Paul was down there. It's her baby. You know, she's going to go rushing down there. Uh, or maybe he called out to her. I have no idea. You know, I'm thinking about that kind of manufactured call. You know, that he had, oh, God, they did it bad. You know, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what if he shouted out to Maggie and drew her attention to it? I don't know. I, there's sure. no way to prove it, but I've always kind of entertained that. Uh, he's the best. He is uh, Joe Scott Morgan, and he is uh, the host of Body Bags, which is a very cool podcast. You guys should check that out. You can catch him on all the uh, – he's he makes the rounds. Court TV a few times with me and uh, many other shows, so look for him. He's a good dude. Uh, Joe, thanks, man. I appreciate it. No worries, guys. Y'all have a great day. You're the best. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. All right, brother. We'll talk soon. All right. Let's uh, check out some of the messages or emails that we received. Murdoch Podcast Facebook page from Irene. Hi, I have been listening to your podcast and watched most of the trial. There was news coverage of a text sent by Maggie to a friend on her way to Moselle in which she allegedly said she thought something fishy was going on and that Alex was up to something. That never came into evidence that I saw. Do you know why? Is it because it simply wasn't true? No such text existed? Or was it excluded from evidence for some reason? Thanks so much. Love the podcast. And I'm sad the trial's over. But I don't have an opportunity to listen to you guys much longer. Seton? Yeah, I mean, I would think if there was some sort of text that said he was acting fishy, that that would have been introduced into evidence and we didn't see it during the course of the trial. So I'm assuming it didn't exist because they went through all of her text. I would think, but again, maybe there was a reason they didn't admit it. Gotcha. And uh, also, we should tell you that uh, we are looking at other cases. We're not done with this one. And we are trying to figure out which will be our next podcast. So hang around and hopefully you'll stick around for whatever we choose to do next. Uh, This is from an email from Matt Harris podcast at gmail.com from Scott. Just want to let you and Seton know how much I enjoyed your podcast. To be truthful, I was late to the show. I basically binged your podcast while the trial started. And we will say some of those early episodes, we were a little rough. <laughs> Thank you for sticking with us. <laughs> I can honestly say that you and Seton provided a podcast that let the listener draw their conclusions of what happened. 
Disregard the feedback. You two are awesome. Just a quick comment on my thoughts on the murders. I believe Alex did it. My only question is how could he possibly clean himself, get rid of his weapons and clothing? clothing? I just think he must have had help. We probably will never know the total truth of what happened that horrible night. Again, thank you and Seton for all your hard work in the podcast. I've learned a lot about the judicial system. Hopefully you'll keep us up to date with the financial crimes. We will. And uh, we're looking forward to taking on our next case and letting you know any updates that might come down the road with uh, anything Murdoch related. Yeah, I am personally hoping that we get answers to where all the money is, yep, and yep. that could be really interesting. And that in that interview that Chandler from Court TV did with the defense team, they say that they know where all the money is. That'll be interesting. And I'm also interested to see where the drug thing will go. Because there's still a couple of guys in jail being accused of being part of the, the, the drug line, from, and also Cousin Eddie's still out there. Yeah. So we got all that. All right. Uh, always enjoy... Uh, Spend a time with you. Hopefully you do with us. We're grateful for it. And uh, you hopefully you'll share this episode and rate it and leave a positive comment. That always helps. And we'll talk soon, friend. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com.